0: This is Vintage Broadcasting The following is a study through the book of Philippians My name is Frank Goss I hope this study proves beneficial to you in the days to come I thank you very much I know that you've heard it said, or perhaps you've even said it yourself, wouldn't you like to be back in the good old days? There was even a very popular song that was sung a few years back that began by saying, Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. Sometimes it seems like this world has gone crazy. Well, if I was able to ask my grandfather this, he would have spoken of two world wars that he lived through, having to get water from the well that was frozen in the snow, killing and plucking his own chickens, collecting eggs having to worry about the drought, killing all of his corn, suffering through the economic crash of the Great Depression, no air conditioners in central Mississippi during the summer heat, milking cows, and then he would show me his hands. His hands were hard, calloused, scarred, worn out. He worked his hands to the bone. Then he would look at me and say, son, those weren't the good old days. Not like what they want you to think. Those days were no different than these days when it comes to human aspirations and dreams and emotions, failures, human nature. People have not changed. Read history. You'll see what I'm talking about. We have more appliances now. We have better cars and bigger houses, better roads, and we're far more advanced in medicine and science. But people, people are still the same. The same applies to Christianity. We have the same Christ that the people within the early church had. But we look at the church today and we begin with our lamentations. Oh, the church back then was so much stronger. There were men who really believed what, what was being said. Wouldn't it be good if we could go back to the ways things were like it was in the time of the apostles? Well, I don't know. Let's, let's look and see. Let's look back at the early church when the church was small in its nascent stages. James was beaten and murdered for confessing Christ. History tells us that Peter was taken and crucified upside down. Paul was stoned, whipped, thrown in jail, shipwrecked, mocked, betrayed, and eventually killed for his faith. And then as time passed, the Romans fed the Christians, the good upstanding church members, to the lions for sport. They were forced to live in caves in the catacombs under Rome. Nero used to light them on fire in order to keep his gardens lit at night. Inside the church, well, you have people wherever you have people, you have problems. That's not a complaint, that's a fact. One man in the early church had an affair with his stepmother, something Paul said not even the pagans do. Women were arguing, men were lying, false teaching was being taught, and leaders were taking total control of the assembly and refusing to listen to any other Christians. False doctrines abounded, and false teachers were standing in pulpits all across the area. Grandpa, have there ever been any good old days? He looks down and says, well, yes, son, indeed, long ago, in a garden. A garden planted by the Lord Himself. But then there came a day that we've all learned to regret. There's hardly a problem that exists today that we have not encountered repeatedly throughout history. The church, we must not forget, is made up of men and women who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus and are true recipients of grace. And we've all been enriched in every way imaginable Blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavens, and these lives testify to the work of Christ within them. There's no lack of spiritual gift. Yet, even among all these people, and with all these things being present, there are still problems. A lot of people just erase these problems by saying, well, that's the unbelievers who've crept into the church. These people are arrogant, they're ego- egotistical, they're high minded, they have ideas of holiness that just simply aren't right, they're legalistic. They cast judgment, and they put more weight on the people than the Pharisees ever dreamed of. One man, a pastor of long standing, told me years ago that he would not preach grace to his people, fearing that it would allow them to slip out from under the weight of living a holy life. Wow. Paul tells us that some people in the Christian world of his day preaching Christ out of envy, hoping that they would hurt him. They were preaching for political reasons, hoping to make life miserable for Paul while he was imprisoned. prison. Now imagine such an attitude within the church. That's pretty bad. But we've seen it in our day. People were taking sides according to personality. They did it back then, they do it today. Some were following Apollos. He was a bit more amiable than Paul. Paul was scarred and nearly blind, and he was so dogmatic. Others, well, they liked Paul and took offense at those who sided with Apollos. Today we have the Calvinist and the Baptist. They won't let the Calvinists preach in the Baptist Church. Why? Because they're Calvinists. And then we have the Arminians. Then we have the Presbyterians. And then we have the Episcopalians. And then we have all these huge church buildings that dot the nation. Grandpa, tell me about the good old days. Would Christians act like this? Well, in an effort to avoid discussion, this discussion as we said earlier, a lot of people will tell you that people who acted like this just don't know the Lord Jesus. They're actually non-believers who've crept, crept in unawares. This is not what Paul tells us, though. That's an easy way to excuse all the problems within the church. Anybody within the church with a bad attitude, then, we can write him off as a sinner who's unfamiliar with the saving grace of Christ. Yeah, we can turn our noses up at the guy with long hair, or the church that plays music that we don't like, or the guys who wear a beard and has tattoos, The poor guy back there in the corner, you see him, and you know who he is. How can he know the Lord in dress like that? He doesn't fit in at all, does he? He doesn't agree with everything I believe, so erase his name, right? Please, do not think that this doesn't happen today. It does. It does. Jealousy, pride, regarding this person to be better than that person, Paul was facing this, these same things in the church in his day. And believe me, these problems have not been eradicated. They thrive, and they're almost celebrated in the church today. Ego moves in like a tsunami within a church, creating strife and leaving a big path of destruction. Now I believe this, and I'm in charge. And if you disagree with me, I have a problem with you. And I, honestly, you're that problem. There are men like this within the church. They're willing to pull out the gospel gun and purify the church for the glory of God. And they don't know or care if if they gun down a few of the saints in the process. It's just collateral damage. It's all for the glory of God, right? I was preaching in a church a few years ago which had gone through a terrible, terrible time of division. A few people had a long-standing history within the church, and they were not going to allow anyone come in who would oppose their ideas if they had any say about it. They literally destroyed the church with the party spirit. They started making people choose sides. And it was very tense, and it was a nasty situation. It was a deplorable and a sad thing to see. They destroyed that church. Discussing this with some of the church leaders in the area, I was told by a few that there are times when we just need to let the church die. Let the people vacate the building, leave them alone, isolate them, and incubate them if you can. Eventually they'll evacuate, and we can start over Is that what Scripture tells us to do? Sincerely, I cannot tell the good guys from the bad, and not in that situation. Both ideas were horrible. But this is the condition of the church. This is how people think. They're more on a corporate mindset. There are leaders who are also pugnacious. They want to rule with an iron fist. They walk in with a wrecking ball. They're going to clean house. And this is by no means the heart of Christ being expressed but it is the condition of things within the church. So we just throw up our hands, we say let them die? No. Paul looked beyond all the turmoil and he saw Christ. It's bad, and that's true, but the name of Christ is being proclaimed, and it's at His name that every knee shall bow, rather than throw up our hands in disgust. He rejoiced. What do we do? Jealousy is a common sin in the secular world. That's a pagan sin, right? However, it's prevalent in the church as well. The devil knows exactly which button to press and when to press it. He knows how to get men jealous. That guy really thinks he's something driving up in that brand new truck. What about the starving people in India? Well, you're sitting in the pew next to him, aren't you? Why aren't you in India? Well, in the church, the preacher looks around and he says, yeah, that guy has a huge church. Yeah, but you know he had to compromise in a lot of ways okay, but we still stand in the church on Sunday morning and saying, onward Christian soldiers, we are not divided, all one body we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity, when there's not any unity among us. We're divided. We're individuals sitting together in a building. The problem seen here in the book of Philippians, in Rome, or here in the church of our day, is that we're not moving in unity, fellowship, or brotherhood. We're fractured. We're divided. We hold grudges and judgmental attitudes. Worldly, worldly principles abound in the church, the work of God today. We take a corporate view and we use corporate principles because we want to be pragmatic and unoffensive. We want to be politically correct. Now, today I've noticed a trend within the church to stand up and have a ministry of exposure. There are those that believe that God has sincerely called them to stand against others with whom they disagree. They have web pages, video pages, podcasts, and television shows where they call out anybody and everybody within the Christian church with whom they disagree. Paul did not do this. No, no he did not. He rejoiced that Christ was being preached. He concentrated on teaching and preaching the truth, not on self-defense and tearing down other people with his argument. Men are men, and being men they're very well prepared to shoot the wounded. And this is disgraceful. And they do all this in the name of God. Here's how Paul responded. He said in Philippians 1.18, the important thing that is in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is being preached. And because of that, I rejoice. Now, we can fight back. This is always an option that's available to us. We can whisper our opinions to the right person, You know the one who you say you know you can. You don't have to tell everybody; you just tell the right person, and you tell them in private, or you discuss these things openly, getting a whole lot of people involved. We can be the catalyst to exposing all the error within the church and within every other Christian. But you know this won't make things better; it'll just cause a fire. It'll cause the dust to fly and feelings to be made manifest and anger. But it will not lift up Christ. It will not build unity and it won't help the church at all. We're given instructions, which we know to be fairly explicit on how to address conflict and error within, in the church. This is not to say that envy and strife and dividing up into factions within the church is to be accepted, accepted not at all. These things will bring bitterness, jealousy, envy, and it will affect the, the believers. People who hold these attitudes will be a miserable lot. God will not bless them. And the Holy Spirit will not ignore this. And unity will not remain. And the Lord says how blessed it is for people to gather together and be together in unity. But such attitudes will hurt the unity, it'll hurt the witness of the church, and it'll hurt other Christians and bring no glory to Christ. Indian strife caused trouble in those days, and it still causes trouble. In the United States, it may not cause death, but in other places, that's not beyond the suggestion. The declining impact of the gospel of Christ on our society and on the world is more than evident. Never in the history of the world have the opportunities been greater for the proclamation of the gospel. Yet never has the believing church been more irrelevant or more divided in our day. This is not caused by external attacks, no, but internal divisions, hearts that are being shifted. How can we avoid falling into this particular snare of the fowler? Well, Paul gives the solution to this situation. First, he says that we're developed, to develop a low opinion of ourselves. How are you supposed to think of yourself? I had one guy tell me that um, he was educated, he was, had a master's degree in electronics and a PhD in some sort of thing, and that we shouldn't be talking about him in such a way. I've had other people say, Do you realize who I am? I've honestly had these things happen, and you hear it, and you go, well, do you know who I am? I'm a child of God. I'm a child of the living God. But developing a low opinion of ourselves is not that easy to do. But it should be easy. We just simply need to see ourselves as God sees us. And as we study His Word, which a lot of people refuse to do, we'll begin to understand our place before God, and before the world, and within the church. I believe this is one view that would be present in every place. It's not, well, in the world you act like this, and you know within the church you act like this. That's hypocrisy. There's a well-illustrated story of how you come to understand yourself in light of Scriptures. There's a guy that's walking home one night after he had spent some time with a friend. It was a starless night, and the moon hung low, so it was a tad bit dark. And it had rained quite a bit earlier, so the man was very careful in walking so as not to step in a mud puddle. Ahead of him there was a street light. And so he walked towards that street light. There was a car that sped by and hit a pothole in the road, and the man was hit by a wave of water. It was a surprise, but it wasn't anything major. He dusted it off and continued to walk. As he got closer to the light, he noticed something on his pants. And as he got closer, he saw that it was really pretty bad. And then as he got into the light, he saw that he was covered with mud. In the same way, when we draw near to Christ, as we read scriptures we begin to see the grace and the goodness of God and the blackness and the shame of our sin. The closer we get to the light, the more this is exposed. And we see the grace of God and we marvel. This is what it means to be a Christian. And those who fail to see the weight of their sin are losing so much in understanding the gracious and good nature of Christ. When we begin to see ourselves as He sees us, then we all unified, Look together to Him for cleansing. And there's a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving. Second, we're to have a better opinion of others than ourselves. Paul says, consider others to be better than yourselves in Philippians 2 verse 3. And this will come about as God makes us sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit within other believers. When you meet a contentious man, I know that that is very challenging. Or a contentious woman, I know that that is very challenging. The natural response is is resistance, complaining, and rejection. It, It does not mean that we consider another Christian honest if he is not. If he's lying to you, he's a liar. He needs to be spoken to. That's not what I'm saying. But a contentious person can challenge you. So don't look condescendingly on this guy as if he's a pitiful wreck of a man. Don't push him away, but pray for him. He professes to know the Lord Jesus. You can't determine if he does or not. Pray for the man. If the Lord gives opportunity, speak to the man about the situation. But be encouraged that he's far better off than he was prior to his conversion. He may be wrong in his attitude, that's true. But God has begun the good work in him, not you. And God will complete in him that good work which he has begun, not you. And we'll look into our own hearts and trust God to continue to work within us that good work which He has begun. Let this attitude be in you, right? Third, Paul says that we are to possess the mind of Christ. Now there's the key to it all. He says in Philippians 2 verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. We develop this mind through our fellowship with Christ Jesus as He works within us, gradually molding us into His own image. It's as time is spent with Christ that you begin to reflect Christ in attitude and action. These things don't come easy to any man. I know that. To change the way you think requires determination, dedication, study, understanding, commitment, wisdom, repetition, a lot of things. Our indoctrination into the ways of this world and the principles that have formed it has been the path that you've been on your entire lifetime. Only the grace of God can pull you out of that. Wrong thinking is like a cancer that has tentacles that wind through every thought that you have, every every memory and every desire that you embrace, and every relationship you have. Your understanding has been colored by your environment. Rich and poor alike have been the subject to the principles and the principalities of this world. In that we all understand to a certain degree what the basic principles are, we're all accepted. And we consider ourselves to be equals. the world even likes us, but then when somebody begins to think differently and to act differently and to say things that are out of the normally accepted conversation, things start to change. I'll attest to that personally. I do not like change, and there are those that are around me that don't like change either. People expect you to act a certain way and within a certain culture within a certain business culture within a certain church. There are certain things that are acceptable, and there are certain things that are unacceptable. Sure, we have to adapt and we have to learn, and that's just civility. But these things, we have to learn to live with in others as well. There are certain ways to think and certain ways to act that are different from what other people expect. Thoughts govern both of these things, actions and actions, in, in me and you. And if you can change the way you think then the actions and attitudes will follow. I know that somebody's going to object, saying, well, this is hard, and I agree. But it can be done. Drug addicts are driven by an inner compulsion. Yes, there are physiological connections as well, but these trigger something in the mind, and the mind moves in agreement with the physical desire. There's people that sit within the church that feel the need to light up a cigarette. Out of habit, you agree, and you take a break to head on out for a smoke. The mind says lie and deny, so you lie and deny in order to defend yourself and your reputation, to cover your feelings. Well, teach yourself to deny the cries of the mind. This is hard. You've been a slave to these impulses for years. Cigarettes, they're like old friends. Who can say no to a friend? Lying comes so naturally that you really can't discern the lie from the truth. You can't remember You've begun to believe them yourself. But the command is given. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We already agree that this is going to be hard, so we get past that. We have to decide on what we're going to do. Obey or delay? Or reject it? Are we going to stay and remain as a slave? Or are we going to exercise the freedom that Christ has given us to obey God. You've been emancipated by the the work and the declaration of Christ. It's finished, it's done, it's sealed. And you can be rid of the chains that have bound you for, for so long. Take solace in the fact that with every command that Christ gives you, there is the enabling power of God behind it. He gives you the grace needed to say no. For an example, I believe Christ won the battle of the cross while he was in the garden the night before he was crucified. He was in agony. And he faced the most intense battle that he had ever faced. He was going to become sin. He began to sweat blood. And he asked the Father, oh, oh, if it's possible let this cup pass from me. Oh. But he came back to say, nevertheless, Father, your will be done, not mine. Every fiber in his being said no. His mind was screaming against, accepting this. But God, who is rich in mercy, enabled his son and strengthened him to say yes. When Judas showed up and kissed him, he was able to look at Judas and think of Judas and not himself. He said, friend, do what you've come to do. Imagine calling Judas friend. You and I would look at him and say, you betrayer. You, you, You betrayer, you liar, you turncoat. Christ looked at him and said, friend. Now he could have said, hold it, wait, wait, it stopped right here, stop it. And everything would have stopped. But his mind was fixed. His will was set. And he was determined. He had come to do the will of his father. Was it easy? No. Was Abraham offering Isaac easy? No. Was Joseph accepting the hand of God in his brother's betrayal easy. No. These things required mental and emotional determination. They required a a knowledge of God and His Word and a willingness to obey and submit to the hand of God. I do not believe that we can simply say Paul was untouched by the wickedness of those fellow Christians who opposed him. Personally, I would think that it troubled him a great deal that he, he had to gird up his mind to stand against not these men, but against the attitudes that would displease the Lord. He can do nothing to stop these men from trying to hurt him. Haters going to hate. And the more you strike out against a porcupine, the more quills that you're going to have pierce you. Rejoice instead. Always. And when people preach the gospel, rejoice. Even if they do it in a nasty way and try to hurt other Christians. Oh, but they're destroying the gospel and the witness of Christ in the nation. Yes, but the name of Christ is going out that's not unreasonable. Are we to go against all that's most natural within us? To resist evil? You're, you're to go against what's natural within you, yes. What comes naturally is the problem that we've had for so long. Having the mind of Christ is abnormal in the human realm, but that's God's way. And God will give you the strength to do these things. Look at the work of God in the lives of other Christians. Even those who are obnoxious to you and those who you think are rude. And look at them and see that God is at work in them. For in this way, the gospel is spread when you love that brother. And this is how others will see Christ in you they'll see that you love one another. Believers are strengthened and encouraged, and Christ is honored. And those who treat you poorly, ah, let them be subject to God. Let the Lord take care of those matters. Learn how to let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. You do this and you'll be learning a great deal about the freedom that He's given us. And you'll be helping the church become strong in order to glorify Christ. Thank you very much for following along in our study on Philippians, and we hope that you continue as we continue with the study here. You are well appreciated, and we hope that this has been of great benefit to you. Thank you very much.